The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica Richmond, and it is always a good time to better understand menstruation. Welcome to Flow. I'm here with the brilliant Christy Van Horn, and we want to know, how's your flow? We're here in flow, on flow, and we're so glad you're listening today. Hey, Christy. Hey, Jess. How's your flow? Christy, I am so glad you asked. I am about to menstruate, a.k.a. pre-menstrual. How you feeling? You know, everything feels a little bit more like... Like that sound. I get it. PMS gets a bad rap. I will say it's also when it's so easy to listen to my body because it's talking so loud. Right? Sometimes it feels like it's screaming. Christy, how about you? Listeners, they're following along. You've ceased hormone therapy, aka birth control. So how's your flow? It's It's a journey. This past period was my second period without being on the pill. And I have to be honest... The flow was heavier. The hardest part, honestly, was the pain. I already have back pain. So the combination of my back pain and then the pain that comes with PMS, yeah, it was a lot. But, you know, I think I think it's going to get better. Yeah, Dr. Holmes talked about, of course, like the pain is like a muscle soreness. But does that actually like impact your back pain like it causes more it pain felt it felt like it I don't know this would be a good question but I think just because my lower I already have lower back pain so then the additional lower back pain doesn't help but just some of my favorite tips I, I love I use my heating pad I do yoga heating pad. I take baths so there are things heat and yoga really help me manage it but I'm certainly feeling a bit more pain during this transitional phase releasing those hormones kind of acted as a buffer between you and the pain somehow my periods were not as painful when i was on the pill Mm -mm. it was like they would just come and go so quickly wow see i i've been off the pill now for almost a decade and i i had so much more trouble with hormone therapy now i have a thyroid issue so that could be part of it the hormone therapy on top of that was challenging but it's just a great reminder that we're all different so yeah we're all different every single Mm -hmm. one of us every flow that's why we want to know how yours is because you listener because we don't we only know ours happy to be talking about it also happy to be here today we're in february and we have an amazing amazing doctor with us I actually am pretty excited for two reasons today. We have the superhero, Dr. Malik, with us today to talk about periods, reproductive health, specifically, what is abnormal? And answer is me. I mean, I a little bit. I have something abnormal going on right now. I'm going to share that. But the number two thing that I'm excited about that I'd love to talk about first so everyone can wait for the more abnormal things is that your course is launching. And I'm not sure how many of our listeners work in public health. But since it is public health, all of our listeners could benefit from what you've put into this. Your degree in history, your master's in education, your work in public health, it's all at a prime culmination in this course. Can you tell me all about it? No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. 
I feel like I am about to have my version of a baby. Um, I'm super excited. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm working pains. on this. Yes, yes. But good. Really good. This course would really, I think, actually would be extremely helpful for many of our listeners. So I know we have some folks listening in who are nonprofit professionals working in the health sector or the general public who might be interested in history and different perspectives that relate directly to health, or maybe you're a history buff. So let me just give a brief overview, and then I'll, I'll give, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can, can find more info if they're interested. But the course is called The Historical Context of Health Disparities. So what does that mean? I actually take a look at how history continues to impact poor health today. So one of the examples is I talk about hysteria and how hysteria is directly linked to why many women continue to be dismissed in medical settings, obviously includes women with bleeding disorders. Another example is I talk about the really dark history of experimentation on black and brown people and the impact that that continues to have on us and specifically during the COVID pandemic. So those are just two examples. For more information, as I said, the link will be in the show notes and people can check that out. I am offering continuing education credits. What? Yeah, I know. It's very exciting for me to be offering that those, those credits for folks. Yeah. And today is the 11th. And the early bird special ends on the 14th. So go get that discount while you can. Yeah, great Valentine's Day gift for people. (laughs) I say, yeah, definitely. Get your loved one this course. Learn about the disparities in healthcare over history. Hysteria, man. Oof. Oh, yeah. We'll come back. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that. We'll come back to hysteria. Yes. Can you talk about what you just mentioned, though? Your flow? What's going on? Oh, what's how abnormal? I'm abnormal? Yeah, what's going on? I'm very abnormal, Christy. That's my confession. Right now, I have something casually abnormal going on in my vulva. I appreciated with Dr. Holmes how we talked about inside and outside parts, kind of like your face versus what's going on inside your head. It's my outside parts. It's my inner labia. It has a tiny little cyst. Now, Dr. Holmes also told us that cysts are common during ovulation. That's actually part of the mm-hmm. ovulation experience. So this one isn't normal. What was really wild is I did all my Googling and I learned about Bartholomew. No, that's not it. Bartholin. Bartholin cysts, which can get to the size of an orange and have to do with the secretions that are coming out, you know, to lubricate the area. I thought that's what I had. So I reached out to some doctors, started to get more information. Then I did a little more research and it turns out where the Bartholin gland is, is totally different than where my cyst is. So this cyst is like a tiny little mucus cyst, sits baths, baking soda, salt, help shrink it up, and I'll keep watching it. This is my TMI share. I just think it's fascinating to realize that something so abnormal could be so scary, but then with so much information at our fingertips. Yeah, research. So did you see a doctor? Not yet. I have an appointment with my OBGYN. But I also just am going to send a little reminder for people that if you are researching medical information and you start Mm. to feel anxiety, (laughs) it might 
be good to step away because it's so easy. I encourage people through the work that I do to do research. Yes, because it helps you to advocate for yourself, right? So when you go to the doctor now, you have questions to ask about XYZ because you did your research, right? So that's awesome. However, people can become so engulfed in it that it makes our minds run endlessly, become very anxious. So it's important to put some tips that I give, put time limits on it. So I'm only going to look for this amount of time and then I'm going to stop. I mean, actually put something on your phone that says I'm going to do this. And while you're looking things up, write down questions that you have so that when you do get to your doctor, you have some some questions prepared and you feel you feel better about it, but you haven't gone into that state of like, oh my gosh. Yes, Christy's tips. Keep them coming. <laughs> That's so good. A time limit. For my part, looking up and finding out more information relieves my anxiety. Yeah, it can. Doing it for too long. Too long. <laughs> like I said, it's not a bad thing. It's just that we have to put those boundaries in place because it can lead to really bad anxiety. Sure. Well, somehow, if you look too long into research of what might be wrong with you online, you'll find out that you could be dying. Mm. And even though we all will and are, it's a little stressful to think about it when you're dealing with a medical issue. And then, you know, also make sure this is just another little tidbit. Try to use resources, making sure that you're looking at CDC, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic. Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic actually do a really good job of like breaking down information into layman's terms. Thank you for that resource. Yes. The information's coming from doctors and not random people. So we should come back to this in another episode because we're having a lot of great conversation right now. What we're here to talk about today, of course is what is abnormal. And in this world, 2021, we're learning that nothing is normal. Um, And sometimes that (laughs) applies to our vulva or labia. But man, you know, labias are tough cookies. Birthing, taking pressure and friction during activities. We know the phrase, grow a pair. Ah, man, grow a labia. Exactly. I always say that. And I am sorry for the mothers. Just a very quick, if, if there are children listening to this, just pause it for a second, fast forward 20 seconds. When people use the term pussy as like a term of like you're weak, you've got to be kidding me, right? Mm -mm. Like childbirth, full stop. (laughs) (laughs) Full stop. The ability of the pussy to completely transform, pass a human being and then heal. It's pretty tough. It's not a weak thing. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. So toughen up, be a pussy. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this with Dr. Malik. Now, a word from Takeda, a proud sponsor of the Flow Podcast Initiative. Takeda is the manufacturer of Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. Together, we're committed to connecting you to the resources that can support you throughout your journey and to helping getting the word out to women everywhere. You have a voice, you have a community, and you have our unwavering support. To learn more, visit vonvendi.com. My name is Dr. Shweta Malik. I am from Buffalo and I currently work at Sisters of Charity Hospital as an obstetrician and gynecologist. OBGYN. Fantastic. (laughs) The heroes of Flow Podcast. Thank you for being with us. Sure. It's my pleasure. 
What's the difference between abnormal versus disordered menstrual bleeding? Are they actually two different things? Yeah, so abnormal urine bleeding is more uh, like a broader term that we used compared to dysfunctional or disordered menstrual bleeding. So abnormal urine bleeding could just be a heavy period. It could be for spotting in between periods or for bleeding or spotting after intercourse. So any regularity of the menstrual cycle is classified as abnormal uterine bleeding. On the other hand, disordered uterine bleeding is mostly referring to absence of ovulation. So in general terms, each month, the normal cycle is triggered by hormonal signals leading to release of an egg from one of the two ovaries, which is termed as ovulation. And it occurs usually in the middle of the cycle around day 14 for most women. Dysfunctional bleeding occurs if those hormonal signals get thrown off, leading to an absence of ovulation. And this can cause the periods to either be delayed, being either too heavy, too light, or can cause spotting or unpredictable shorter and longer cycles referred as disordered uterine bleeding. So interesting. You, You mentioned duration and amount of blood. What about pain? What level of pain denotes something is abnormal? So pain is a little bit more difficult to understand from patient's perspective. We do have them scale it from a you know level of one to 10. But the one I follow more often is I ask patients if they needed to use some pain medication during their period, if they used Motrin, if they used Advil, or mitol, and if they say yes to that, I want to know how much did they use. So, so if a patient is using about two to three tablets of Motrin every six hours for the duration of their cycle, that is considered, you know, pretty painful, requiring all the that medication use. And if they say even despite that they still were in pain, that would be considered abnormal amount of pain which we call as dysmenorrhea, pain during menstrual cycle. Dysmenorrhea. Do you take into consideration other symptoms as well, including, uh, you know, if, if she can't play sports or if she has to stay home from school or those kind of life moments um, or stay home from work if we're talking to uh, adult women? Absolutely. So when a patient tells me that they are having a lot of pain during their period, my follow-up question is, A, is it requiring use of pain medication? But another way to assess is, what do they do when they're on their period? Are they doing their normal day-to-day activities? Are they still able to participate in sports? go to the gym, go meet their friends outside? And do they have to really just stay home because they're on their period and the pain and the bleeding that is, if that's the cause of them not being able to enjoy those activities? I also ask, you know, do you miss school when you're on your period? And if they say yes, I ask them how many days is it throughout the duration of your period? Is it the first one or two days of the period? Because that helps me assess how much that is bothering their, you know, day-to-day activities and their lifestyle. To understand what's normal versus what's abnormal, let's talk about what a normal period is supposed to be like. So, In a normal period, you get the period every 21 to 35 days apart. 
I also, you know, ask the patients when you're counting the days, it's really from the first day of one period to the first day of the other period, because some patients mistakenly count uh, the bleeding free days that will make them think that their periods are occurring twice in a month. Next thing that you have to look into is how many days does the bleeding last? A normal period can last anywhere from three to seven or eight days. Anything beyond that is considered abnormal uterine bleeding. Next thing we also look at is how much are they bleeding? What is the volume of bleeding? In objective terms, it's considered 30 mLs being the average, which is about two tablespoons. Now, nobody really knows if they bled two tablespoons because, you know, we can't really measure that unless you're using a menstrual cup for your period, which actually has the mLs listed on it. But with pads and tampons, I usually ask, are they soaking through a pad or tampon in under two hours, because that would mean that their bleeding is heavy, which is called menorrhagia. I also ask if they have to wake up in, at nighttime from sleep to go change a pad, and is it leading to staining off their clothes or sheets, which would again be considered a heavy period. Great. That was really wonderful. Comprehensive. No, we actually, we had a note here to talk about menorrhagia and even the term, because some listeners might not be familiar with it. It's kind of a medical, it's the medical leaning term for heavy bleeding menstruation. Is that right? Yeah. So menorrhagia is basically heavy uterine bleeding that's more than the normal amount, which Again, objective terms, normal amount is anywhere from 5 to 80 ml, with 30 mLs being the average, but anything more than that is considered menorrhagia. It could be just based on how often do they have to change their pads? Are they completely soaked? That helps me evaluate. I also ask patients if they're going through, when they're bleeding, are, is there large clots that are larger than a quarter size that are coming out? Do they experience flooding sensation? You know, when they go to the bathroom, like blood is just sort of pouring. Um, all those help point towards menorrhagia and not a normal period. Because you're talking about clots or that rushing feeling that can happen, but spotting could also just be a couple drops of period blood of menstruation on your panties. So that is can still be a sign of some underlying condition. Some uterine abnormalities called polyps can cause spotting. Sometimes ovulation, if it hasn't occurred yet or is delayed, can lead to spotting. So anytime the patient does notice spotting when they're not supposed to be on their period, is even though it's not usually heavy, which is why we call it spotting, it's still concerning enough that they should see a doctor and talk to them about it. Gotcha. If, with any amount of spotting. Yeah. Any amount of spotting, which is happening not when they're supposed to be on their period. That's really great to know because I think a lot of girls and women, people in general, just dismiss spotting as it just happens. So that's really great information. I usually do tell women if it has only happened once or twice, it's not a big deal. But if you're noticing that this continues to happen in between each cycle for about two or three months, that means we do have to dig deeper into figuring out what's the cause of it. Some women could just have it from after sex. They could notice some spotting and that could be a sign of just some inflammation on the cervix or an infection that's causing spotting. So I would, you know, then go ahead and look out for 
um, and do tests for checking for infections. But other times it could be, like I said, from ovulation or a polyp in the uterus, which would then um, mean that I, I do work up to evaluate um, their uterus by doing an ultrasound. Great. Thank you. So as we're discussing all of this and the symptoms that you're describing, what steps would someone take and when should they take that step to see a doctor? Every woman should try to see an OBGYN at least once a year. But if they're experiencing any of the symptoms of menorrhagia or spotting that we just discussed, that is a reason to go see either your pediatrician, your primary care doctor, or an OBGYN. There's no minimum age. There's really no um, wrong answer for when to go see a doctor because every patient's symptoms are different and anything that they feel is out of the normal for them for their menstrual cycle is a good enough reason to go see a doctor. I think people need to hear that. So thank you for, for saying that. And I think we do have a listener question for you. I have had very painful and heavy periods since I started at the age of 12, and I've really only found relief after having my three children. So my oldest daughter is 12. She hasn't started her period yet, but I'm concerned that she will experience the same pain that I did. So my question is, how likely is it that this is genetic? My mom had very mild periods, maybe two days, and my sisters had very painful and long periods like I do. Thank you. So there's nothing to say that, uh, you know, the daughter will definitely have the same amount of pain with her period, but there is a strong genetic component to when the periods usually occur. So the onset of menarche is when the periods first start to occur. It follows similar to whenever the mom started getting their period. Also the pain and the bleeding associated with period has a genetic component. One of the conditions that causes this, which the patient may have is called endometriosis. Endometriosis is when there is endometrial tissue or the tissue of the lining of the uterus is also present at areas outside of the uterus inside the abdomen. Those patients have a very high risk of having really painful and heavier periods. And 40% of women will notice that their daughters or their mothers also had endometriosis. So I would say that there is a good chance that if the patient has endometriosis, that the daughter may have some similar symptoms as well. Can I ask just a quick follow-up question about endometriosis? What do you, as a doctor, what are you looking for? Because it is so misdiagnosed, undiagnosed. Are you seeing a change? And where do you think that change is really coming from? Do you think doctors are becoming more familiar with endometriosis? So you're absolutely right about the non-diagnosis or the confusing diagnosis of endometriosis. And the reasoning behind it is endometriosis can only be diagnosed definitively by doing surgery. And, you know, if a 15-year-old comes to me and they're having painful period, my first inclination is to try medical management before I jump to diagnosing that they have endometriosis, which is why a lot of times I would suspect endometriosis based on their symptoms, but I cannot definitively diagnose them with it 
unless a patient has had a surgical procedure done. The reason we don't jump directly to surgery is because it helps with the diagnosis and it may help temporarily with relieving some of their symptoms, but they do come back. And the mainstay of treatment does involve medication, which is birth control pills to suppress that tissue that's causing the pain outside of the uterus. So our focus mostly becomes on treatment strategies rather than diagnosing endometriosis for each patient surgically. Do you think it's becoming more familiar in your field? Yes. I mean, there have been, there has been a lot of advancement in treatment for endometriosis. There has been now newer treatment options that are available for the patients. If it's, you know, if it's pills, if it's injections, Um, two new treatments just came out this year um, that are available for the patients. So yes, it is definitely getting more recognized because we know so many women have suffered from endometriosis not to mention it's also a major cause of infertility in women. And when it's undiagnosed, it can lead to years of stress and anxiety from when you want to have a child and aren't able to have one. You know, one of the things you mentioned, and this was for endometriosis, but in general, hormone treatment is used for different disorders, but there are pros and cons. So hormonal treatment is basically two hormones, estrogen and progesterone, that comes in a combination of either pills or patches or a ring that goes in the vagina. And then there's progesterone-only treatment options that also come in form of just pills or a shot that goes into the muscle or long-term options, which consist of an intrauterine device or an implant that goes in the arm. So that's the basic overview of all the hormonal options that exist. Now, most of these options are going to help with majority of the symptoms of if it's painful period, if it's heavy period, all these treatment options will work to a certain degree in helping to alleviate those symptoms. In addition, I also use it for patients who are looking to just improve their acne, who are looking to have reduction in the amount of ovarian cysts that they have been diagnosed with, which can also be a cause of pain. I also use certain birth control options for treatment, of course, of the heavy periods, but also in patients who have endometrial hyperplasia, which is thickening of the lining of the uterus that can happen close to menopause or after menopause as a treatment. It even is used as a treatment for early endometrial cancer in certain patients. So uh, pros of hormonal contraception also involve if you have used it for about five years or more in your lifetime, it actually decreases your risk of ovarian cancer and cancer of the uterus. So there's definitely lots of advantages to it, although I feel like a lot of people do think that it's going to either affect their fertility in the long term, which is a myth and not true at all. And uh, certain people think it increases their risk of cancer, which again has not been shown based on any evidence that it does increase risk of cancer. If anything, it decreases the risk of certain cancers. And talking about the cons of hormonal treatment, there are certain side effects that I always tell patients when I'm starting them initially on um, hormones. 
is that there's some temporary side effects because your body is not used to the same certain doses of the hormones I'm giving. So patients could experience headaches, some nausea if they're not used to the hormones, feeling bloated, mild weight gain. They can also experience some changes in their mood if it's depression or um, anxiety. And certain people also may feel a change in their sex drive. Now, most of these symptoms should be temporary. And as their body gets used to the hormones, those symptoms should go away. But if they don't, that's then they should bring it up to their OBGYN doctor. I have all my patients come in for a return visit in about three months whenever I switch around their hormonal birth control uh, or hormonal medications to see if they're having any of those symptoms so I can adjust it or switch to a different type as needed. In terms of the significant risk is one of the ones we worry about is getting blood clots in legs or lungs. Blood clot in the legs are referred in medical terminology as DVT, deep vein thrombosis. Any hormones can increase the risk because they make blood, the estrogen can make blood thicker which increases the risk of getting a clot. Now, this risk is way lower than what happens when you're pregnant because in pregnancy also the estrogen is high in the body and it increases the risk of blood clots. So in general, despite the slight increased risk, it is still much lower than if a patient was to be pregnant. And if a patient has no other medical problems that increases their risk of getting the blood clots, then it's totally safe to use. I do encourage patients to avoid smoking um, because smoking can increase risk of blood clots and to stay hydrated. Um, those two interventions do help negate some of the risk involved. And again, I don't you know, routinely give it or prescribe these estrogen-containing birth control to any patient who otherwise has a complicated medical history that can increase this, these risks. So much good comprehensive information and also a great reminder to drink water. Can we talk about menopause and what do we expect? Talking about the abnormal bleeding, abnormal uterine bleeding actually has a pretty high incidence of, uh, you know, occurring during the time leading up to menopause, which is called perimenopause. Now, average age of menopause in the United States is age 51, but patients may start to feel certain changes in their cycle three to five years prior to menopause. These changes could be either just lightening of the cycles or them being or it could be that they're a little bit heavier and coming more often. So it could be lighter, it could be heavier, it could be that they're skipping their periods or the periods are coming more often. But in addition to that, patients may also feel certain changes because of the estrogen levels declining from the ovarian function. Those will come as what we call the menopausal changes of hot flashes that they get the sudden feeling of heat where they start sweating, mostly on the face, but also rest of the body or night sweats, which is basically a hot flash that happens at nighttime. So they wake up drenched in a sweat. Those happen due to the uh, declining function of the ovary. Uh, some people will also experience painful sex secondary to dryness in the vagina during these years because 
vaginal moisture is obtained because of the estrogen levels in the ovary. And if those levels decline, then people do experience vaginal dryness. There are treatment options for this. And any patients whose daily life is getting affected from if it's hot flashes or mood changes or vaginal dryness, there is, again, hormonal treatment that I prescribe to those patients to make their life better. Do women who have abnormal or disordered bleeding, is their experience different when they go through menopause? So not every person feels all the symptoms that I just described of menopause. Some people don't feel a difference at all till their cycles just disappear. And there's some women who never go through the hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness issues, and others do. There's, you know, nothing to say that people who always were having heavy regular periods are going to notice those differences more or less. There is some association with the weight of the patient as to our fat cells also produce some of the same hormone estrogen gets converted in the fat cells. And some of those patients may experience these symptoms less, but you know, there's nothing to say that patients who were having issues throughout their life are going to continue to have more issues um, during menopause years as well. That's so interesting. I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. The, the When you mentioned estrogen in fat cells, during premenopause, fat cells hold on to estrogen or release est estrogen? Estrogen is converted in fat cells. So the more fat cells you have, there's a higher chance that uh, those patients don't notice the change in estrogen, even though their ovaries aren't producing as much anymore. Some of those patients don't go through all the similar symptoms that we describe off menopause, the hot flashes, the night sweats. Okay, interesting. That is interesting. I want to make sure to like go through menopause and like put on some weight beforehand. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know if I can recommend that. Okay, sure. Not doctor approved. You're a good doctor. <laughs> I actually also, you know, wanted to talk about when we were talking about heavy menstrual bleeding, there is certain workup we do, which also entails getting patients history to see if they have a family history of a bleeding disorder. Patients, you know, who have a family history of a bleeding disorder are more likely to have pretty heavy periods starting from the onset of their periods compared to other women who don't have a bleeding disorder. For the most part, will notice their periods may get heavier as they get older. So like late 30s or 40s, because fibroids are a very common cause of heavy menstrual bleeding. Fibroids are basically benign tumors of the muscle of the uterus. And, you know, 50 to 60% of African-American women will have fibroids at certain point in their life, which can cause heavy bleeding. It is also the most common reason for hysterectomy in the United States, which is removal of the uterus. So, you know, young patients who are having heavy periods you know, those are the ones where I am more inclined to looking for a bleeding disorder versus later on in life where I'm more inclined to look for causes that are fibroids or polycystic ovarian syndrome that could be the cause of their heavy bleeding. That's really interesting. And I think really important to also the question that Leonore asked, just also going back to that for a moment, do you have any, we've talked a lot about technical 
things, which is, and you've been so wonderful at explaining all of all of this. Is there any practical advice uh, that you would give uh, a mother who is worried that her daughter is going to have heavy periods, but she hasn't started yet? She hasn't started menstruating yet. I do tell mothers to try and have this discussion with their daughters before the period starts. Once they have started the breast development, you know, you know that the next step is probably going to be the onset of periods. So, so they know what they're, what's about to come their way, show them what pads look like, what tampons look like. So when you know, when they get their period, they're not frightened by it and are able to handle it a little bit better. Also, if mothers can talk about their own personal experience for when they had their first period and how they dealt with it, having some Motrin or ibuprofen around. And so then the you know, their young daughter can feel a little bit more comfortable, more educated, have, have the knowledge of what the periods are supposed to be like. In the bleeding disorder community, a lot of the moms worry that first period is going to be really heavy, which can be the case, of course, if the daughter has been diagnosed with a bleeding disorder, or even if it's not been diagnosed just yet. I encourage those mothers to actually bring their daughter to an OBGYN to sort of have a discussion of what it entails. And I would, you know, I, I usually go ahead and discuss treatment options even before they start, they have started their period. So this way they have something already in their medicine cabinet. And if their period is particularly heavy, they can start using it rather than suffering through their first period, which could, you know, could last for seven days, it could last for 10 days, 14 days, we just don't know. So this way, there is a plan in place. And there is a stigma around taking a young girl to an OBGYN's office, because patients think if they're entering that office, that they're going to get a pelvic exam, which a lot of young women are not comfortable with. And I totally understand that I you know, most of my young patients come in for a visit and we just talk about what their history is and what my plan is. And we totally eliminate the actual physical exam or pelvic exam till they're older, till they're age, at least age 21, or if they're having a problem that I have to assess before that. That's such a an important message to send to parents that you can go see an OBGYN. It doesn't have to be a pelvic exam. You should, you know, even advocate for that and tell the doctor, I just want to make sure that my daughter has someone to talk to, a professional that we can make a plan with. I think that's such a, a great message to our listeners to really encourage them to, to do that with their daughters as well. So I have a question. It's a personal question. So I have recently given up birth control for the first time in like I feel like since I was 16. My husband had a vasectomy like four or five years ago. There's really no reason for me to be on it anymore. And I just had my first period since going off and it was a little bit heavier and uncomfortable. But what else should I expect, if anything? So your periods would just go back to whatever they were prior to being on birth control, if you still remember what that is. So it is possible that they'll get a little bit more heavier or painful because all birth control does make those things better for you, which now you have forgotten what they were like <laughs> pre-birth control because of how long you used it. Birth control also has additional effects on how 
your skin looks, where it takes care of acne, it makes your skin glow, makes your hair fall less, and your nails grow more. So all those effects you may notice that might go away. So if in the shower, you start to notice that more hair is falling, Uh it's just because that extra estrogen is gone. (laughs) But I'm not saying that everyone would feel those effects. It depends on the type of hormones you were on and how much your body produces already off. So, you know, some, some notice that it is significant and others don't notice a huge difference at all. I think it's a good choice to make if your husband had a vasectomy and your period otherwise doesn't bother you, then why be on birth control? It's just another thing you have to worry about, you know, remembering to do. So there are patients actually that are in the same exact situation as you are. They would either their husbands had vasectomy done or they themselves had their tubes tied. So they're like, I don't need birth control anymore. But what happens is that their periods either go back to what they used to be or they get heavier in general because it's possible that in that time span that either they developed fibroids or they have some other hormonal issues which are making the periods irregular. So, you know, a lot of the times the complaint of the patient is, I got my tubes tied and my periods got heavy. Well, you got your tubes tied, but you stopped the birth control you were on, which is why your periods are whatever they were going to be. It's not related to tying your tubes. I do advise those patients that birth control is not purely and only used for reason of birth control. We use it a lot of times to manage heavy periods, dysfunctional uterine bleeding, patients who have a bleeding disorder, they need it for basically the entirety of their uh, menstrual life, so to say, till they go into menopause. So it definitely has many other uses in addition to birth control. We're on flow, going to be following Christy's journey every month. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dr. Malik, we've gotten so much amazing information from you. I'm not sure, but do you have any where online or in the world that if listeners wanted to follow up, ask a question, follow your work, do you do that? Are you available online anywhere? I am available on social media on Instagram under Dr. Malik OBGYN is my handle. So D-R-M-A-L-I-K-O-B-G-Y-N. And I would be happy to answer any follow-up questions that listeners may have. That's amazing. Thank you so, so much. It's been great. So I wanted to mention that there is a lot of apps available for women to track their menstrual cycles. One of the one I use for all my patients who have heavy periods or heavy periods from a bleeding disorder is called Sisterhood app. So S-I-S-T-E-R-H-O-O-D. In that app, I encourage patients every time they change a tampon or change a pad, they just have to click a plus sign that actually calculates a score for that month once they have done it for all the days. And that helps me quantify how badly they're bleeding and if it really is menorrhagia. One, it tells me if it's menorrhagia. And second, it also tells me once I put them on a treatment option, if that score continues to decrease, I know my treatment is working or if it's failing. So it's an excellent resource. It's a free app to use for anybody who is willing and interested to use it. And they can bring it to their OBGYN to say, this is how much I'm bleeding. Is this normal? And the OBGYN can then look at that information and come up with a treatment option. 
The second resource I encourage my patients to use, which is more so for birth control, but it can also be used for patients who are having heavy menstrual bleeding and want to look at their options, um, is bedsider.org, B-E-D-S-I-D-E-R.org. And it is very patient-friendly information, full of pictures, pros and cons of each method. They compare one method to another. So when patients aren't sure of exactly which option they want to pick, I have them look at this website and then return back to me once they have, you know, had um, time to look at all the available um, material and it helps them figure out what they would like for themselves. Because honestly, each patient is unique. I try to use an individualized approach for treating women because some women want their period to go away and they're totally fine with it. And other people want to still have a period every month just later than what they're experiencing currently. Looking at all these options in detail definitely helps them make this decision. That's awesome. I love Bedsider. I used to be a reproductive <laughs> health educator at Planned Parenthood a long time ago. And oh, I, yeah, it's like okay. my favorite resource. <laughs> so I'm excited yeah, that you said me that. Too. Yeah, those are those are my go-to. That's awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. Dr. Malik is amazing. Seriously. It is amazing to hear an accomplished doctor like Dr. Malik lay out some of the abnormalities, you know, of all the experience that accompanies menstruation so clearly. Just knowing that not normal things happen is really uh, reassuring, I would yes, say. Absolutely. Uh, knowing what's not normal reminds us that there's nothing to be ashamed about when we're feeling that way. Yes, exactly, exactly. You gave me a tip earlier, but I personally would love some more tips, maybe around the stigma of shame. Can you hit me with some Christie's tips? Yes. In regards to shame, you know, shame, shame, shame on shame, period related shame that is for today. Shame on shame. Right? How do we overcome this influence in our society of how we see ourselves when it relates to our periods? It's not easy and it starts so young, right? So just a couple of quick tips today. First of all, talk about it openly with your friends, with your family, with your children, including your sons. Mm. So important. They have to know what's going on. Share this podcast. Share other period positive resources. Be the change. Have these conversations. What I said last time with Dr. Holmes, use those teachable moments. It's kind of the same thing. Like send somebody this podcast. If you have a friend who's had really bad periods in their life, send them the podcast. Use that as like a teachable conversation starter. Lastly, support those that are doing the work. There are some really incredible organizations that we will talk about on the podcast. Follow them, donate to them, share their their media, just put them in the spotlight and so that they can continue doing this work as well. Yes, yes. In fact, I have a, a great Instagram doctor who does some great edutainment TikTok videos. I'm going to put her in the show notes. Awesome. Hopefully we can have her on in the future, but love that. Media has great information in it. People are sharing the info that needs to be shared. 
So just keep it going. Yes, in a non-stigmatizing way. Like this is this is who we are. This is we bleed. We bleed. And and the stigma has existed for a long time. So you dear listener, if you feel it, we're just here to try to make it a little bit easier. And I think we're going to do that with our closing segment. It's time to remind you that you're not crazy. Come here, baby. What do you think you are? You are not crazy. Crazy or something? Crazy. Today on You're Not Crazy, we take a look at media representations of periods. It is 2021, and now there are shows representing menstruation accurately and compassionately, but the very first representations of menstruation were not as kind. Back in 1976, when Carrie, the horror film, premiered, the thriller heavily contributed to the stigma around period blood, suggesting it was something to be afraid of or disgusted by when the lead character experiences her first period in her public school shower and is teased and tormented. Her response? An iconic massacre. The message, don't bully someone about their period blood. One of my strongest period memories was, I I can picture the classroom, I can picture what I was wearing. I was in fifth grade, I had a jean skirt on, I started menstruating pretty early and the blood had gotten onto my chair and I was mortified. The point of this and the point of why I'm talking about it in in regards to like how the media used to and still does in many circumstances represent periods is that I just felt so much shame, right? And this is a part of life. We shouldn't feel shameful about it. It should should have just been like, I'm going to go to the nurse, get some supplies, take care of myself. I think the other thing too here is for people who are starting to menstruate, having a sweater or a change of clothes in their locker, just in case, especially for those who have bleeding disorders, because they have such heavy flows. So that's just a little, another little tip, you know, just have something extra. I always have an extra pair of underwear on you. I can tell you from traveling a lot. I've been on cross-country tours. Yeah, I've traveled a lot. And just always have socks and underwear on you. Like, why not? Just always. It's going to help with menstruation. Since we're talking about first periods, unlike Carrie, I knew what was going to happen. But my first period, the hue was brown. We talked about period mm-hmm. colors previously. Yep. It was a little brown. I thought, oh no, did I like have a little poop in the front of my underwear? Because it was brown. If it was red, I think I would have been like, this is it. This is the moment Anne Frank talked about. But no, it was brown. And that was confusing. That was a little bit confusing. That is so true. And something else moms should talk to their children about. Talk to your family about menstruation. There's some normal things about it. There's a lot that's abnormal. We're so glad we got to talk to you today about what is abnormal. Hey, Christine, next month, we're going to get in it with what is disordered. It's going to be a good one. It is. I look forward to it and hope that you all join us. Yes, join us. And hey, if anything you heard today stimulated an idea or a question for you, please reach out. We're both available on Instagram. I'm at Jessica Lauren Richmond. Christy? At How to Talk to Your Doctor. Yes, yes, yes. And we'll look forward to hearing more of your questions, answering them on this show. Thanks so much for checking in and we'll talk to you next month. Next flow. 
Subscribe, rate, and share flow. Referrals from you are the best way to reach new people. Share your story with us. Do you have an experience of extreme cyclical bleeding? We believe sharing these stories will support an increase in medical research and social acceptance. So we want to know, how's your flow? And thanks to our sponsor Takeda for their support of Flow. Flow is produced by Bloodstream Media and supported by Takeda. Shout out to creative director Amy Borg and Flow's hosts, Jessica Richman and Christy Van Horn. Flow was edited by me, Colby Crow. Our next available episode will be March 11th. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. <laughs> <laughs>